I'm Mackenzie Roller, and this is Voices of Change for Change. Last year, I spent the spring semester researching the United States criminal justice system. I wanted to answer the question, what are the negative effects of the power imbalances in the United States criminal justice system, and how can these effects be reversed? Growing up, I heard stories of police brutality and understood on some level that people of color, and specifically black Americans, were much more likely to go to prison than white people. But I did not understand the extent of this reality until I began research for this project. The Netflix documentary 13th highlights the effects of our nation's history on the way our criminal justice system operates today. People of color have been directly targeted by our courts and legal system from the Jim Crow era to the war on drugs directly targeting communities of color. It is not just a matter of bias. The Sentencing Project is an organization founded in 1986 that is dedicated to creating a fair and effective criminal justice system in the United States. Their data shows that one in three black men born in the United States in 2001 will go to prison. One in three. Only one out of every 17 white men will go to prison. And this inequality is just in terms of race. Looking at socioeconomic status, gender, and other identifiers also reveals large discrepancies in the way our country handles punishment. The justice system is built to benefit wealthier, educated individuals. I had the opportunity to witness the proceedings of a district court this past January. I had never been in a courtroom before, but what struck me was how hard it was for me to follow what was going on. The language used is so dense and full of legal terms, someone learns only with a legal education. And the proceedings moved quickly. I then started to question, if I am someone that has had the privilege to attend high-level academic institutions, and I do not understand what is happening, what is it like to be someone sitting in the defendant's chair who did not have access to that education? It is clear that our criminal justice system was built and continues to operate in a way that benefits white, rich, educated Americans. The system has hurt people of color and people of lower socioeconomic status in our nation for decades. So how do we change it? One way that the system has begun to change to become more effective and just is the creation of drug courts. The first drug court was established in 1989 in an attempt to respond to substance abuse. Rather than simply sending people to jail, the goal is to provide a path of treatment and strict probation that is more effective in solving the problem in the long term. In recent decades, more drug courts have formed in response to the increase in the opioid epidemic. These reforms are a way of holding people accountable for their actions while providing a path to a better, healthier future. This is just one way some courts have begun to transform, but there is so much more room to improve. The question is, where should that change come from? Lawyers and judges have the responsibility of upholding the law and carrying out their jobs to the best of their abilities. 
Are they the ones who should be making the change? Should change happen from within the system? Or does the change need to come from outside movements and calls to action? I'm Mackenzie Roller and a senior at Miss Porter School in Farmington, Connecticut. This podcast is the culmination of my senior capstone project working to answer the question, how can we create effective social change? I had the incredible opportunity to bring together three attorneys to have a discussion about the role of our criminal justice system in our society. Each woman brings a different perspective and experience with the criminal justice system to the table. I was introduced to Nicole Long through a family connection and was able to sit in on a day of her work in a district court. She's a criminal defense attorney in southeastern Massachusetts. She has run her own solo practice for the past four years in Marion, Massachusetts, and acts as a court-appointed public defender as well. Next up, I met Mary Foden at an alumni event at Ms. Porter's this past fall. Mary is a second-generation immigration attorney and partner at DeCastro Foden Immigration Law Practice. She practices in Hartford, Connecticut and New York City. She is a litigator, taking her cases to the court, and she also advises immigrants on matters ranging from professional visas to asylum. At the same event I met Mary at, I had the privilege of meeting Nola Droney, who is a Superior Court judge sitting on a criminal arraignment assignment in New London County and the Norwich Geographical Area Court. Before sitting as a judge, she did defense work and, like Nicole, was on the list for court-appointed public defenders in Connecticut. Over the years, these attorneys have found pride and joy in what they do and have gained incredible experience in their respective fields. As the criminal justice system largely guides the way our society functions and acts, you cannot overlook it in a conversation about social change. In this episode, we will look to these women for insight as to how the legal system connects to making change today. I started by asking them about how they ended up in the positions they hold today. I started practicing immigration law right out of the gate. I didn't think I was going to go down that path. I wanted to go into copyright law and intellectual property. Uh, When I went actually to do that work and I had a job with the Senate Judiciary Committee to pass uh, copyright legislation reform, the work just didn't speak to me. When I finished the legislative work on that copyright bill, I didn't have anything else to do, and so I was tasked with taking up immigration work, and I just caught the bug. I really loved it, and I had to decide if I was going to kind of continue down the path in immigration on the legislative side, or if I was just going to try my hand at actually just practicing law as an immigration attorney, which is what I decided to do. I've been doing that now for 15 years. Every day is exciting and every day is really fun. I generally really love what I do. I started off thinking I was going to be an environmental lawyer and save the world from all the polluters and graduated from law school and was like, here I am world, 
ready to hire me? And the answer was no. I worked in Boston doing medical malpractice work, defense work, and just was a job. My heart was never into it. And I was doing a ton of volunteer work in our community and was able to transition that to doing criminal defense work in the district court, which I love. Many parallels to you, Mary. Every single day is different, but I genuinely love what I do. And I love being able to help people in a really meaningful way. A lot of times on the worst days of their lives is the first time I meet them. I have a a ton of job satisfaction, even though I don't always feel successful or that I've gotten what I've wanted in court or for my client. I, I love the interactions with people and their families and feeling like I'm doing something in my community. Uh, So I began practicing law in 2004. I clerked for a federal judge here in Connecticut. I then went to practice at a private firm in Boston and then came back to Hartford two years later. And then I uh, was practicing both civil and criminal law. I too was on the the list for the federal public defenders in Connecticut. So I represented mostly corporations in civil matters, but probably 10% of my practice was federal public defender work. And then in 2018, I was lucky enough to be appointed to become a Superior Court judge by Governor Malloy. And I have been sitting criminal arraignment court, uh, which is essentially where you come the day after you're arrested. And also doing criminal trial as a trial judge as well in Norwich. So I've been there for two years. And I too love my job. It's a wonderful job. I get to put all of my education and training to trying to serve the public of the state of Connecticut, seeing people on their worst days, both defendants, victims, and try to let them know that someone's up there trying to listen to them and do what's right under the law and fair. And I too never know what my day is going to be. It's a very high pace court, a lot of volume normally. And every single day I love what I do. So we're all three very lucky in that way. I love hearing about how passionate you guys are about what you do. And so to dive in, the legal system is one that largely governs the way that our society acts, both from like a legislative standpoint as well as the criminal justice side of things. And so as you've all been involved with the justice system for a while now, I was wondering if each of you in your own words, based on your own experiences, could explain how you believe the criminal justice system impacts society and social change. So basically, how does it impact the way that people and systems interact? I don't mind starting on this one only because I met Mackenzie through my work in drug courts. It has been around in Massachusetts for a bit, but my involvement began in the Wareham District Court. We just started our drug court just over a year ago, and it's the same judge, probation officer, a police officer from Wareham, a detective from Carver, who are on the drug court team, a court clinician, and three defense attorneys and a prosecutor. And it's just a very specialized, intensive probation that truly responded to the opioid epidemic. Although we do have alcohol abuse, we're also able to to handle that as well. And it's really, really was responsive in the sense I think that Mackenzie's talking about and working to form a collaborative partnership for a problem that wasn't being jailed away. And it's been really exciting to be part of my drug courts team that started from the very beginning where we're kind of like, all right, here's the best practices model and here's us doing it and how does it all work together and helping to serve our participants. And I mean, the way that our judge interacts with the participants, it's more of a partnership, even though she is still the judge. And it's been a really, really interesting way to view this problem 
and this population through this lens. I've loved it. I think in my perspective, we don't get that as much because in the arenas where I'm practicing, I guess where you would feel the social changes from the practitioner side, that we are all sort of incrementally working toward a position of advocacy that we want for immigrants. But counterbalanced is, of course, there's always sort of three parties. There's the agency, the government attorneys, there's the judges as well. So not all of the interests are aligned in, in a way that is favorable for my clients. But I do feel when it becomes harder to be an advocate, and at this moment, I think it is hard to be an advocate in the immigration context, you do feel a tightening and a camaraderie among the defense attorneys, wherein I certainly see more recently a lot more willingness to mentor and share information. And I think that that chips away at the competitiveness that keeps us from being able to move toward a goal. It's an interesting situation that we're in right now, wherein the attorney general is mandating judges to take positions that may even be against what the tribunals of the judges have told the judges to do. So we are in a, in a, in a pull and tug sort of moment that I'm learning as we go every day. I'm reading cases every single day and we just have to just keep rolling with it and just keep on pushing with the ideas that we think are right and believe in the judicial process. I mean, as a judge, I am not an advocate. So it's not as if I myself am pushing for any changes. I don't view my role as that, but rather making sure that the judicial process is fair and that the integrity of the process is upheld. So on a daily basis, even if we have 200 cases on the docket, my job is to make sure that everyone feels as if I have heard them, considered their argument, and applied the law, whether they agree with my decision or not, and that I do my job by making sure I explain my decision to the best of my ability so that people understand why, and if they take issue with it, it can be appealed. I really do take seriously that duty to make sure that everyone feels as if the process in our courtrooms is fair. And so while I'm not working necessarily for any social change or advocating for any issue, that role of making sure people are heard is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of build off of that, Mary, you were speaking about this a little bit, but specifically, like, as an immigration lawyer during the era of the Trump administration, which has changed a lot of how the country views immigrants, how have you seen the immigration courts change and how has your role evolved, if it has at all? I certainly have a long view when it comes to the practice of law, and I am a defense attorney, we have to always begin with what is the law. You blaze the trail for your client and you advocate for them with 100% of your ability, your skill, your passion, and you apply the law. But I have a lot of respect for the decisions that the judges make. When I look at the decisions that are happening by the administration, 
even if I disagree with them, that won't change my result and it won't make me a better advocate to be upset with any position of any administration because there were positions that even under the Obama administration that I was very much against. That's not my role. My role is to see how can I make the best argument, what is the best position for that case before this particular judge given these particular circumstances because if you don't focus on that, you're screaming at the wall. And that's not my goal. If I think that the law is not on my side, I want to create as best of a record as I can for an appeal and then sort of trust in the judicial process if I think that that regulation or that new application is improper. I do believe in the judicial process and I think that that will come out with the right result and I just want to make sure that my case has all the record and the facts to support a remand when that happens. So I I try to take the longer view of it. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense. And connecting it to what Nicole was talking about earlier with the drug courts, you described what drug court is, but for people who may listen to this podcast and not understand the difference between drug court and what your normal court looks like, could you describe how it changes the experience for the people you're defending? So I should clarify too, our drug court is a post-dispositional. So in other words, their cases have all been resolved. They're on probation. It's a very supervised, highly structured probation where they meet every week with our drug court teams. And the um, probationary period is 18 to 24 months in our drug court. It's a long-term commitment to this really intensive probation process where the drug court team meets with each other and then the participants, and and even the language is different. We call them participants. They're no longer defendants. Then the judge speaks with them one-on-one about what probation, what the rest of the team has reported in our earlier staffing meeting. So it's a system of sanctions and rewards and really collaborative relationship building that that is totally unlike my experience in the criminal courts where it's very adversarial and there are still moments where that it's not all rainbows and hearts and flowers you know there's people who have serious substance use disorder and it's one step forward two steps back and the judge is the ultimate arbiter of what will happen to this person it's just a much more collaborative way of practicing law than anything I've ever done in all my stops throughout my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then to ask you specifically, Nola, as a superior court judge, you sit in a different position of power. And so I was wondering, how do you view that power difference in the courtroom? And have you experienced any changes in the court system in your career that have shifted the way you view the justice system's role in society at all? Um, In terms of the power, I think the role of a judge obviously has a lot of power. To me, it's humbling. And to the judges I have worked with as well, most of them are just humbled by the amount of power that there is. I am still a relatively new judge. I've only been doing it for two years, and I have mentors who have been doing it for decades. I don't think that ever changes. When I walk into the courtroom, I'm still taken back by by being up there, by making these decisions every day. 
I don't think of it, honestly, as me having more power than the state or the defense counsel or the defendant. I mean, we all just have different roles. But this courtroom is a special place in which people make their arguments and decisions have to be made. And I take them very seriously. It impacts people's lives every single day. Uh, The courthouse that I work in is probably more of a traditional courtroom than Nicole was talking about in that we are seeing cases in which people have just been charged with crimes, but we also have what are called supervised probations. Say someone was put on probation and they haven't done well and the probation department has decided to violate them, they can have a violation of probation pending in front of me. And then they can be supervised by probation while the case is pending in front of me, which means that I get their drug tests or I get reports about them every time they come into the courtroom. And so I may get a request by the state to raise their bond, which means to send them to court essentially, or to give them another chance. So in those kinds of ways, it's more of a traditional way of uh, how you would think of a courtroom than when what Nicole is doing. What I've seen over the past two years is maybe similar to what Nicole deals with every day is the rise of the opioid epidemic. It's very, very serious problem in the courts in which I sit. That and alcohol use, substance abuse, it's just pervasive. And I would say in most of the cases that I'm dealing with, there's some component of substance abuse, opioid addiction, and then mental health problems. People's everyday lives are very, very difficult. You know, Nicole is is closer to the people who are dealing with it than I am, because when I've made my decision, I think about it after I've made it. I think about it before. But Nicole has to then deal with the state and her client and explaining it in the aftermath. And same with Mary being in private practice, you're counseling people through the immigration process is in many ways harder than being a judge because you're on 24 seven. The way that you speak to the defendants, I think that it is powerful in the sense that you have an impact over the way that they perceive the process. And, you know, it is so impactful to have a judge speak with kindness. And even if the law is not on their side because there are consequences to one's conduct, it doesn't mean that it needs to be delivered in a way that isn't helpful. Very few people are going to speak as directly to them as you will. And so I've seen on my end, clients say, the judge said this to me. And they'll think that over very carefully in a way that if their friend told them, they just dismiss it. I think that is one of the hardest ways to make the social change is to really be able to speak to the client in a way that will penetrate and will stay with them and make them think deeply about their lives and about their goals for the future. Because nothing that we're doing today is just about necessarily today. It's all about a path or a trajectory that this individual in front of us is going to have for years. That's pretty exciting, I think. Absolutely. And so I was talking about this with someone yesterday and they referred to it as softer changes happen and eventually legislation changes. So thinking about, for an example, the general public's attitude towards gay marriage changed before legislation changed. And so is that specific path necessary to create lasting change? Are laws essential to creating and maintaining change? I think certainly legislation is the last mover. (laughs) It takes 
a lot of social acceptance to get to the point where our legislative body is passing a law. I think that it certainly happens in the state level a lot faster than it does on the federal level. But when you practice federal law, as I do, the state changes don't impact what I do on a daily basis. So states had legal marriage for years in Connecticut, but it still was not recognized in the federal law and in the federal context of immigration. I do think that that takes time. And I think that the more that you see that happen, it gives you faith to have a little patience and to keep pushing. And then when you see that sort of ball rolling, you begin thinking, okay, this is gonna actually happen. And the more that that just keeps on moving forward, the more we have the possibility of larger legislation. I found, just referring back to drug court again, attitudes changing tremendously. It's such a widespread problem. It's not confined to one economic bracket or one race. Everybody has a story behind it and everybody knows somebody. There is a lot of empathy for people who have gone through struggles in life or somebody who was legally prescribed medication. And I think there's been a real connection around the whole epidemic of opioid misuse and abuse. And that has helped lead to the changes that we're seeing, speaking just from this specialty court that has been created in the Commonwealth. So in general, based on your experiences and own opinions as people living in America, how do you think people can make the most effective change? I think just do what you love, because however you define success, you can't have success in your work unless you really believe in what you're doing. And you have to kind of walk in every day with that feeling that Nola described, like, I pinch myself when I walk in to my work every day. And, you know, like Nicole said, how do I get to do this every day? This is amazing. You have to have that component. So search for that until you find it. And if you don't have it, don't stick around to wait for it to come to you. You should, within a year or two, know if, if you're just utterly bored with the content. Find something that that excites you. And then just be a student as much as you possibly can and never stop learning because you feel that passion that you just, you have to do it because you have to learn more and you wanna do more. In whatever field you've chosen, if you have that feeling, you'll just, you'll make something of it. I think Mary said it perfectly. And just to add on to that, be a student. You never know who your teachers are going to be. I mean, I even think some of the best questions I get and the questions that make me dig most into my own research in the afternoons after we're done in court are questions from defendants who are representing themselves. Because sometimes they will just say, you know, well, why is this happening? And I think to myself, well, that's a very good question. And I'll say to them, and I'll get back to you on that. And it'll make me go start from the very beginning and have to explain it to someone. So sometimes self-represented defendants are the best teachers or, 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 you know, someone that maybe works in the clerk's office, isn't a judge, isn't a lawyer, but teaches me so much about the process of how courts work. So just don't ever stop learning from different people. Doing what you love is so important. And I don't think that this is easy work. And it's hard. I do have days that I'm so down in the dumps when somebody's life is impacted so negatively and I get really affected with the domino effects of that. Somebody goes to jail and then they lose their housing and and they lose their job and 
their kids suffer. Like, I think it's a hard job. I don't think every day is a great day, but every day I love doing the work. And I am constantly learning from everybody around me. All, all I want to do is get better all the time. So can social change happen within the justice system? We heard each of these women describe their dedication and responsibility to their roles. Lawyers represent their client in the best way possible under the law. Judges listen to all sides and apply the law. Is it their responsibility to change the system from the inside? As we heard today, probably not, but it could be yours. If we want to change who gets arrested, why people get arrested, and the consequences for an individual's actions, that comes by changing the laws. Changing the laws involves changing who is in power. To change who is in power, we have to vote. If we want to see parts of the criminal justice system begin to change, that means we have to get out and vote and get others out in voting too. Our individual voices carry the power to make the change that we want to see. Mary Foden is an immigration attorney and partner at DeCastro Foden Immigration Law Practice. Nicole Long is a practicing criminal defense attorney in Massachusetts. Nola Droney is a Superior Court Judge in Connecticut, sitting on a criminal arraignment assignment in New London County in the Norwich Geographical Area Court. Mary, Nola, and Nicole left us with the thought of becoming lifelong learners and learning from everyone and everything around us. After hearing from Niall Fort, Kat Lindroth, Vanessa Rubble, and these women, what have you learned? What do you want to see change in the world? What have you learned about yourself? Who do you want to be? Personally, I want to understand how our nonprofit system can become more effective. For a sector that takes in so much money, why are larger changes not happening? Like Kat said, the nonprofit system is supplying band-aids, but why can't we push to change the overall policy? In democratic societies, we have decided that movements are the best way to create change, because as Vanessa mentioned, you can get enough people marching in the same direction. I wonder if there is a way that the skills involved in building a successful movement can be applied to the nonprofit sector. How can we create long-lasting change using the systems we already have to our advantage? I also learned a lot about myself personally through this podcast. I learned about who I want to be. I have decided to attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for college. This decision was largely based on the fact that I am going to be a part of the Pogue Scholars Program a program that provides scholarships to students dedicated to diversity and social change efforts. I'm excited by the chance to be surrounded by like-minded individuals. I'm excited to have the space and support to continue to push for change.
At the same time, I felt the desire to travel and learn and understand more about the world before college. But I had been letting that sit. And then COVID-19 came and I was also in the midst of editing this podcast. When I heard that classes may be online in the fall and that there is so much need throughout our country right now, the idea of a gap year seemed to suit what I want to do next year. I was fortunate enough to earn acceptance into the Global Gap Year Fellowship Program through UNC's Campus Y. I have now decided to take a gap year. My gap year will consist of domestic service work in the fall and hopefully work abroad in the spring. I will be able to begin to wake up from the American dream and step further outside my house, as Niall Fort described, in a way I had never imagined. I want to see places in the U.S. that are new to me and meet people with opinions and backgrounds completely different from mine. I'm excited to be able to provide aid in a time of need. I am planning to spend my fall working on voter access in a historic election year that will face many challenges due to the current pandemic. This gap year and deviation from the quote-unquote plan is a risk I'm not sure I would have taken had it not been for the incredible conversations I had in this podcast series. I am doing what I can to follow my passions, to really dig into what I care about, and to learn at every possible opportunity. There is so much change I want to see in the world, but I know that my view of the world is still so limited and that I am ready to learn more about my place in it. As Vanessa Rubble said, The impossible becomes possible only when you decide it can be. This episode was written and produced by me, Mackenzie Roller, with editing help from Ali Oshinsky. The music is by Sound of Picture. Special thanks to Sophie Paris, the Global Studies cohort, my family, the rest of the Capstone students, and Miss Porter's school for this incredible opportunity. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to these conversations and investing your energy in learning about how to shape our future. Your voice has the power to create the path forward for our society. We cannot progress without you. Please dedicate time to exploring what you are passionate about, to creating conversations with the people in your life, and to continuing to be lifelong learners. Be a voice of change. This is Voices of Change for Change. I'm Mackenzie Roller. Thanks for listening.